0: Turn to Esther chapter eight. Now, when I was a kid, sixth grade, I had made the big move from White Sulphur Springs, Montana, to Rochester, Minnesota. I went to a little brick school in Montana. I went to a high-powered academic system when I moved to Rochester, Minnesota. I was trying to kind of fit in. I was I was actually pretty behind in all my subjects except reading. I had read pretty much most of the books in our little library at the school I came from in Montana. So at least I knew how to read. They, uh, the teacher, I think, was trying to find a place for me to kind of pick up and start learning some things, so he uh, enrolled me and a few other students in a class they were offering at this wetlands conservation center just outside of Rochester, and so they put us on a bus. We'd go there. This is all a new experience for me. We get there, and this, this guy, he, he works out there. He's got this jar of muddy water, and he seems to be pretty excited about it. In fact, he's saying this is, this is pond water that he had got from that wetlands there, and and he's like acting like this is like most fascinating thing, and I'm like that's just dirty water and right? it's got a growth. I'm getting kind of bored. And he says, you know, what we're gonna do is we're gonna really take a look at this. And so all you need is a drop, right? So he we get our little slides and they have these microscopes out there, and they put a little drop of water on your slide, and you put that covering under there. And uh, I don't recall actually ever looking into a microscope before. I kind of understood the process of what was gonna take place there, but it makes things bigger, things you can't see, right? So they slide, you put that underneath that microscope, and all of a sudden. You bring that thing into focus. I could not believe what I was seeing. I mean, there's all sorts of little animals and amoebas and these cellular little structures, and they're all moving and they're attacking. And I'm like, whoa! I went from bored to fascinated in just a matter of seconds because, you know, what I couldn't see with my naked eye was now readily apparent. You like look at this microscope, and he'd have us draw it all out and draw what you were seeing there. And like, these are some. I don't have you ever done that. I mean, these are like monster-looking things. You don't need science fiction. All you need is little pond water and a microscope. You know, and so. I was like, wow, that was pretty fascinating. And I'll tell you, when you come to the book of Esther, especially Esther chapter 8, it's like you take that slide and just a drop of pond water, and all of a sudden you start seeing things that you'd never seen before. In Esther chapter 8, you start seeing the glimpses of the greatness of God. And, you know, as we've been making our way through the book of Esther, you're like... How are these things working out? Where is God in all of this? When you come to Esther chapter 8, you really start seeing how the providence of God is developing and maturing his people. He's accomplishing his work through just the everyday circumstances, apart from the miraculous, where he is governing and guiding even in the midst of an evil world. And so when you come to Esther chapter 8, you, even though God is never mentioned in this book, you see signs of him everywhere especially in this chapter. For instance, you can know the greatness of God by seeing how he changes the direction of a king. Look at chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. Now, on that day, this takes us back to just last week, because do you remember what happened last week when we were looking at Esther chapter 7? That is the time where Esther holds her second party, and she calls out Haman and says, he is the enemy of the Jews. He is the one who is seeking to annihilate the entire Jewish population, and then she comes out and identifies before her husband, King Ahasuerus, that I also am one of the Jews. When you passed on your signet ring, you passed on a death sentence to your own wife, the very queen of Persia and you know how that all transpired the king was all flabbergasted didn't know what exactly to do because after all he's almost kind of like a little quasi god and he'd obviously made some huge blunders so he backs out goes to the garden comes back and and he puts an end and kills Haman in fact he hangs him he impales him on the very uh, very gallows that Haman had been building to actually kill Mordecai so on this day, talk about a huge day, significant day. This is when Queen Esther and Mordecai, who is her her adopted father, who is actually her cousin, they come before the queen, and Esther had disclosed what he was to her. You see this Mordecai, the very guy that saved your life, the guy that you rewarded? He's more than a guy that works at the king's gate. She says, This man is my my father. He adopted me. He truly is by family relations. He's actually my cousin. And you see that there is this changing that's starting to take place in the king. Because remember, King Ahasuerus is the guy who signed off on the killing all the Jews. He didn't actually look into it too closely. And look at verse 2. The king took off his signet ring. This ring has the impression that when he pressed that on wax or on clay, it was like his signature. It was like having uh, the ability to actually accomplish anything he wanted because if he pressed that on there this was like the edict of the king the king signed off this is like a power of attorney and he actually gives that signet signet ring that had once belonged to haman who he had made the number two guy in his kingdom he had taken it away from haman and he gave it to mordecai and esther set mordecai over the house of haman now let me just tell you what's going on here uh, when, when you actually uh, did something that was to harm the king and you were found guilty of that and they killed you, all of that stuff all became then the property of the king himself. And now the king obviously probably feels pretty bad about what he's done. So he's going to give Haman's servants, his wealth, everything that he has, his house, his everything that he, in Haman's estate, he now gives it to Esther. And Esther... Set then Mordecai over the house of Haman. I think what go, what's going on here is that Hasarius has realized just what a travesty he's created, and so just to show that, listen, I'm really sorry about this. I'm giving all of this to you. Esther then gives it to Mordecai, who is her cousin. And I'll tell you, when you see Esther and Mordecai, they're different than when we started this book. Remember, they used to be like totally incognito, like chameleon. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of Christians that they never actually identify that they really know Christ in most circles. Maybe at the church or at the youth group. Okay, if it's, it's okay. But generally, they always are just amalgamated into the culture. Well, no more. These people are radically changed. You look at Esther. I mean, she's gone from just depending on good looks or trying to just please men. She realizes, I've got a great value of life. I am a kingdom builder. I'm not just someone who's on the sidelines to be used or abused. I have great value, and she is stepping forth as a leader of her people, as does Mordecai. And so now you see that they are, what Mordecai is now made like the number two guy in the kingdom. And Esther is functioning with such strength. She's only like 20-something. Maybe she's like 25, maybe at most. But yet look look at how strong she is and what a leader that she's become. But I want you to see that she has a great, a great burden in her heart. It's interesting when you look at how God takes people that are downtrodden or even captured, like for instance, like Esther or Mordecai. But if you look at also people like Joseph or Nehemiah or Daniel, God raises them up to accomplish his purposes. And when you come then to verse three, you're going to see the heart of a real spiritual leader. A real spiritual leader cares more ab- about others and God's agenda and his kingdom than they do themselves. And that's really what you've seen in Esther. She she really willingly put her life on the line. She risked it all. She said, "If I perish, so be it. I perish." Well, you're going to find her great burden in verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. Now they're obviously meeting, they're talking. You can see the exchange. The ring was given to Mordecai, and Esther spoke again to the king, and look at this. For a woman who doesn't seem to be too prone to emotion, she pours it all out, and she fell at his feet. She's falling before the feet of the king, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. I mean, can you see this scene? Here's King Ahasuerus. He has just transferred basically the authority and the power of his kingdom to her adopted father Mordecai, and now she just literally drops down. She's not worshiping him, but she's pleading with him. She's making supplication, and she's weeping. Here's a woman who's not normally crying. I'm, I'm sure he's like taken aback, like, "Whoa, you're, this is so totally different. You're not usually like this. What what could be so bothersome? What is burdening you?" And so he says in, in verse four, it's written, the king extended the golden scepter to Esther so that Esther arose and stood before the king. Literally by extending this scepter, he wasn't like sparing her life because she's already entered in the presence of the king. What he's saying is, I'm I'm lifting you up. What is it that is burdening your heart? Speak to me and express your heart. And I want you to see just how diplomatic she is. Then she said, verse five, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight. Do You see all the respect it's just oozing out of her? This is a woman that understands her position, that she could influence an entire nation. And she says, "'Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces.'" This is really interesting how she goes about this. Notice she never refers to it as law because the law of the Medes and the Persians are it could never be changed. And that's because the idea is that the king could speak no wrong. And so if he made a law, if he spoke it, it's law. And it cannot be revoked or changed. It can't be changed by the king. Now, they don't have in this kind of despotic Persian empire. They don't have any legislature Uh, They don't have a Supreme Court that says, hey, this is unlawful. They can't make any changes to it. And so she actually points out that it is Haman who actually devised this wicked plan to destroy all of the Jews. She doesn't try to implicate the king. She's smart. She's wise how she goes about this. And then verse 6, she says, For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? This is the heart of a spiritual leader. She cares so much about her people. She's not worried about herself. And frankly, at this point, Mordecai and the queen probably are going to be spared this event, this death decree that Haman got passed, where all of the Jews are to be annihilated in the empire. We're looking at about 15 million people, She's probably going to get a pass on that because she's the queen. But she's not concerned about her life. She's concerned about the lives of her people. And so she's pleading, and she's identifying fully with her people. And I, I, you see the emotion? Do you see how much these gripped by this? And I just got a question. What are you gripped by? What, what is it that causes something in your eyes to actually have tears? is there something that causes your heart to race is there something you're willing to plead for is there something that you'd be willing to do whatever it took to get it changed do you have anything in your life that moves you if you're a spiritual leader you are concerned about god and his people and his kingdom and that's what you see here she is moved to the point of tears she is pleading for her people And she is saying, if there's any way that anything could be done, this has to be changed. Now, the king knows what's going on, but he understands that he can't really do anything about the edict that he made. And so notice verse 7. So King Ahasuerus said to the queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, listen, behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther. Everything that Haman had, I've given to you. And him... They have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. The enemy of the Jews, this Haman, I've put him to death and everything he has, I've given to you. But I I want you to see how God has changed this heart. God has changed the heart of a king. And when you see this taking place, it's glimpses of God's greatness. And God intends for us to remember this, that God could change the heart of a king. Just like it's written in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. When you see all of the rulers and the leaders in the world, whether it be in our government or another government, and you're like, this is absolutely terrible. Just remember this. God can change hearts. In fact, there are multiple times in scriptures where it's written that that has happened. And here is one of them. Here in the book of Esther, it is clear God can take the heart of the Persian king and change it. Let me give you another glimpse of God's greatness. Not only can he change the heart of a king, like you see here with Ahasuerus, but he can also change the circumstances of the world. Right now, there is a death decree that all the Jews are going to die on March 7th 473 bc it's been signed with the signet ring of the king even now there are the enemies of the jews that are preparing to annihilate them to kill them i want you to see that god can even change the circumstances of the world so the king speaks in verse eight now you write to the jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. He's saying, I have given you the power and the authority. You, you write, and he's speaking to Mordecai and to Esther, you write a counter edict. You write a counter decree and you sign it off with my ring. And so they do just that. Verse 9, let me just tell you what's taking place here. This is, this is all taking place about June 25th, 474 B.C. Just two months and 10 days prior to that, 70 days ago on April 17th, this same year, that is when that death decree went out, will now Mordecai and Esther write this, verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, I I want you to see this, he puts the Jews on the same plane with the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces which were extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. When he does this, he actually gives them position as a people. He puts them even on a plane with the governors and these princes and these satraps, and he's going to have letters written, and just like the original letter went out, to have all the Jews annihilated by Haman. Remember when he said that? Well, now there's going to be a counter edict and he has it going out to every province according to its script and every people according to their language as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. I mean, these are their best horses and this is going out and this is a royal declaration. And look at verse 11. And in them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives. And then this is taken right off of of Haman's decree. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including the children and women, and to plunder their spoil. And so right what he does is he makes this decree, and he has it written out. Anybody that attacks any Jewish men or their wives or their children or seek to plunder them, the Jews now have by declaration of the king the right now to defend themselves. In fact, he, he uses the word to assemble. We could translate that muster, like to muster an army. It means to put together an army, to call them, to train them, to get them ready to go. And this is, they couldn't have done this beforehand. Now, let's, let's take a little thought here. If the Jews are going to be attacked on that particular day, you know that they're going to try to defend themselves, but they're not going to stand a chance. I mean, these people have had a, basically a whole year to get ready to kill them. It's, it's, they don't have a chance but now the Jews can actually start developing an army to fight fight this off. Now, b- apart from this edict, if you were trying try to formulate some sort of army or gather some people to try to defend yourself like some sort of militia, that would see, be seen as like you were trying to start and usurp a king or create a rebellion. So now they have the ability to do so. And they have the ability to defend themselves, their women, their children, and anybody who might try to attack them or kill them, because there's always going to be enemies to God's people, and we we'll want to put them to death. We, when we say that, the first person we kind of think of is like Hitler, right? And, that, and that's really what Hitler did. He actually, they actually created a system in which they were going to kill all of the Jews, and they're going to take all of their stuff, and all of their money, and all of their gold, and jewelry, even the gold in their teeth, and they're going to use it for their big war machine to take over the world. But you see there's enemies of God's world all, all the places, like, like in Iran, in Syria, in Egypt. You've got Sharia law that makes it illegal to actually tell someone about Jesus. And, I mean, look what's going on in the world. God always has his enemies, and his people always pay a price. But I want you to know that... God is the defender of his people. And even if some are going to pay the ultimate price, God is the one who is going to take his stand. And we're starting to see this as we get glimpses of his greatness here and as we're in Esther chapter 8. Now, did you notice they have the right to kill? Okay, let's take a time out. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Isn't it one of the commandments, thou shall not kill? You guys ever heard of that? Anybody Oh, man. So wait a second here. Is, is God setting up his people to sin against the very law that he gave? Well, that's really interesting. Lots of people are nodding like, yeah, that's right. That's one of the Ten Commandments. That, you're not supposed to kill. Actually, the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, it is written that thou shall not murder. It doesn't say thou shall not kill. There's actually a difference between killing and murdering murdering is that you have thought about this in advance you have with wickedness and malice you are then desiring to kill someone unlawfully oftentimes premeditated that is what the, one of the 10 commandments says thou shall not murder killing is in the event like if you were being attacked that's what they're being allowed to do is if you're in the in a line of defense if you're forced to take a wife that's what has been now allowed and now decreed for the Jewish people. Don't think that they're being called to sin. They're being called to be able to defend themselves. And they're getting ready. They got about eight months and 20 days because March 7th, 473 BC is about to take place. And yet you see that the circumstances of the world are being changed. And so you see in verse 11, you got, they have the ability to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them. They are not the ones who are going on attack. They are defending themselves, including children and women, and to plunder the spoil. And verse 12, it says, On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. On the very same day that the Jews are being annihilated, the Jews now can defend themselves. In fact, they can get ready now. To prepare for their defense. And so, verse 13: a copy of the edict is to be issued, as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples, so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. And the couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out of the citadel in susa and so this went out and you could just see all these scribes they're writing it out in all the different languages of the empire i mean this is this is a broad empire in fact it's the largest empire about three million square miles that ever existed and now it is going forth and they are getting ready and i want you to just see glimpses of god's greatness you see how god has changed the direction of a king you see how he is changing the circumstances of the world. Before it was the Jews are going to be annihilated, now on the day they're to be annihilated, the Jews can defend themselves. And what you're seeing is glimpses of God's greatness. But I want you to see one other thing. God can change the hearts of the people. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of Of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. I mean, remember when you saw uh, Mordecai before, like in chapter 4? What's he wearing? He's wearing clothes that he's torn, he's been rolling around in the ashes. Now, God has lifted him up from literally the ash heap and death, to now he's the number two guy in the Persian Empire. He's dressed as royalty, royal robes, blue and white. He's wearing this this crown. It would likely be a turban. It's got gold in it. He's wearing this large purple garment. And notice the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. I mean, now, all of a sudden, you've gone from it's not popular to be Jewish to this guy is being celebrated. And verse 16, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. Look at that. The very same people that are still under an edict where they're going to be eliminated, God has, through his providence, given them light. And when the Bible speaks of light, it's connected with God's joy and his blessing because of its presence. These people are different. They are experiencing a revival. They're seeing the hand of God stepping in and beginning to defend them and even rising up one of their very own. And there is gladness and there's joy and there's honor, which speaks of esteem. And I want you to see something else. Look at verse 17. I've actually underlined this because this is so amazing and so powerful. In each and every province, in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, look at this. There was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast, and a holiday. It's like, they're like, man, this is awesome. We need to have a potluck. I mean, what do you do, people of God? Things are going good. You have to have a potluck, right? Get out the casseroles, get a band, right? Let's sing some songs. I mean, They are celebrating, even though they're still facing annihilation, they're starting to see the power and the presence and the providence of God at work. And this is what is so amazing. You might have missed this when you read it before. But look at this final sentence in verse 17. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. This this is fascinating this is the only place in the hebrew scriptures where you actually see this where they literally says they became jews they saw the power of the living god and it says that for the dread of the jews had fallen on them they realized that the god of israel is far more powerful than the pantheon of these persian gods I mean, the Persian gods, I mean, they had, this is, a, this is an empire that had gone over to Greece and to remember what happened, they got spanked. They got whipped. And their gods seemed to be somewhat powerless. And then their gods raise up a king like Ahasuerus who has obviously got major issues. The God of the Jews, he can take a people that has been brought into captivity. He can raise them up. He can actually have a, a Jewish woman become queen and a Jewish man who once was weeping and rolling around in ashes, become the number two guy in the kingdom. He's a God who could actually have a decree where the Jews can defend themselves legally. And the people saw this, and they're like, there's fear. Because this is not one of the trifling little gods of the Persian Empire. They've now encountered the one true living God, and they're starting to see his power. And many of them became Jews. I mean... Can't you see this, at least even with people like that new, like Mordecai? You're different. Remember how you used to just totally hide that you were Jewish? Now you openly identify with the people. There's something different about your character. There are, people could see differences in Esther, but people saw differences in the Jewish people around the empire. There is a revival that is taking place. There is rejoicing. There is prayer. There is fasting. There is consecration. There is hope because there is the presence of God and they see him. And the people saw this. These Persian people saw this and they're like, "We want what you want." I don't know about your testimony, but prior to me knowing Christ, when I encountered the real Christian, not the not the folks that, you know, kind of say the name or play the game, but were genuine had a love for Christ and an authentic love for the people that were willing to engage me with the gospel, I knew they had something I didn't. They had a stability in their life. They had purpose and focus, and it was more than just having fun. They they had God. They had this relationship with Christ. And multiple ones told me about this relationship they have with Jesus and how he means everything to them and how he has changed literally their life. I wanted what they wanted. Because I knew that I didn't have it. That's what is taking place here. And friends, you need to know that. You are a missionary. Do you know that? You're either a mission field or you're a missionary. Like, oh, no, no, I'm not a missionary. Uh, I got a job or I go to school or I'm at home, I'm hanging out with the kids. You're a missionary. God has purposely put you in your neighborhood, your home, your school, your job, our community. For the purpose of demonstrating his power and his glory and to give you an opportunity of sharing his gospel with those who need him most. This is a fascinating development in verse 17. These people literally, because of fear of the living God, are becoming Jews. Now I'd imagine that some were like, I get the picture. I mean, i got a Jewish guy and he's number two in the empire and we got a Jewish queen. I ought to fall in line at least you know, be nice to these people and kind of align myself. I am sure there was plenty of that going on. But I also just assured there was significant heart change taking place. Do you know why? Because God had developed heart change in his people. And it started with Mordecai and Esther. That is where revival always starts. You know, we pray for a revival and we'd like to see it. I want to see it in my generation. I want to see this widespread turning of people to Christ. I pray for it. I desperately want it. But you know where it starts It starts in our hearts. We we are captured by him. We love him. We're willing to identify him. We're stopped playing chicken. We have no fear and we will boldly engage with lives. And you start with broken lives. And you have the freedom in Christ to do that. You have an identity in him. You have security. What are you afraid of? We can march forward. And God has used people like Esther and Mordecai who once were totally incognito. They even had a plan. Let's not tell anybody you're Jewish. I'm changing your name. Okay, used to be named Hadassah, Myrtle, That that's not working. We're going to call you Ishtar, goddess of love and war. That's a nice Persian name. You just go by that and never tell anyone you're one of the people of God. You know what's happened? Life change has happened, and these people became God-fears and worshipers. They are different. Now, When you look at chapter 8, can't you start seeing the glimpses of the greatness of God? Don't you see it? But really, as you look back through the entire book, God intends for you to see the glimpses of his greatness in each of the chapters. Even when they are walking far from God and they've amalgamated in the empire and they won't go back with all the other promised ones, about the 50,000 that went back to reestablish themselves in Israel, they, I want... They are supposed to see, and God wants us to see, the power of his providence. Now, I want you to do that with your life. I've been doing this, kind of just even thinking about different aspects of my life. You know, you kind of think like, oh man, I wish that wouldn't have happened, or I really wish I hadn't have done that, or boy, if I hadn't been in this place. I want you to look at it from the lens of God's providence. Don't question it, assume it. He's showing you I am powerful and I can work in all circumstances and there's times in my life just like in yours where i'm like god where are you i totally don't get this what is going on why this well you know what you can do you can trust god and take him by faith let me tell you about faith faith is trusting in the presence and providence of god even before you see it that's what faith is we are a people of faith Right now, we're living and it looks like, man, it's getting tighter and tighter and harder and harder to be a Christian. But we live by faith because we know ultimately Christ is the victor and this isn't the final scene. And so what I'd like you to do is, in the difficult times of your life, and the good times, I want you to start identifying and seeing life from God's providence. Look at even some of the unexpected events. Look at some of the things that you thought were insignificant that ended up being so very important. Like, for instance, look at the providence of God and how you came to Christ. Maybe you were flipping uh, through a radio station, and you came across, like, what in the world is this? And you listened, and you eventually heard the gospel. I can tell you, in this auditorium right now, we've got a guy, and that's a big part of his testimony, as he's already told me. Were, were there friends? Was there someone on the bus? Was there a classmate? Was there a family member? Was there a grandparent who talked to you about Christ? What were the circumstances? And if you're like me, God had to really break you down because there's no proud people in heaven. So what does God do? He has to strip you down and bring you to the position of brokenness so that you will come to a place of dependence upon Him. And if you're not there yet, you're like still investigating. You're like, why are all these bad things happening to me? Because God is stripping you away from self-dependence to bring you to Christ-dependence. And the harder you want to fight this, the harder it's going to be for you. That's how I found it for me. All of these different events, though, they're part of God's providence to bring you to a position where you're trusting and resting in Christ. Remember like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16? Remember that? He just showed up for another day at work. They had some strange guys, these people that are called these Christians, he didn't know a whole lot about them. So they beat him. You remember that? And he was in charge of locking him up and watching him. And then there's this earthquake. But he'd been listening to these boys, these guys singing praises to God after they'd been beat, praying for, their, for the people that actually in, uh, incarcerated them. And after this earthquake and these chains are loose and all the prisoners could run away, he realized that he's a dead man. But then he called the, he called out and Paul calls out and calls for lights. And they, this guy is running in, he's, he's asking for the lights, he sees Paul and Silas, and he fell before him, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. And remember, he took him to the, his home, and, he, and Paul and Silas shared the gospel, and he and his entire family believed, and they were baptized. What's going on? Well, you know, Paul and Silas showing up in their town, and that whole incarceration experience, and the earthquake, that's all part of God's providence consider how god has directed your life how you to the person you're married to to where you live to the job that you have the school that you're in you know what yeah i'm sure it's messy and i'm sure there are times where it didn't make sense and there's brokenness and there's pain and there's hurt but i want you to see life from god's providence that he is working in the midst now all of life's circumstances aren't just wonderful right in fact there is so much pain and there's brokenness and hurt. There's, there's times where you've got a serious illness, you've got wayward children, you've got the death of a loved one, you've got shattered hopes and dreams, right? But you need to know this. That isn't the final story. And God wants you to see him even in the midst of your pain, even in the midst of your brokenness, the, the difficult situations. Was not Jesus there with you? Let me give you one of the precious promises of the book of of the Bible, Romans 8, 28. It says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Even your waywardness, even your sin, God is using all of this to bring about the working of his will. He will work it together for his good. And the fact that you're here this morning and worshiping and praising God, that is good. And every time you open up the Bible, do you know what it does? It gives us glimpses of God's greatness. And let me tell you why God gives us glimpses of His greatness. They are meant to strengthen our faithfulness. Every time you see God at work, it is meant to encourage and develop your faith, to take you from weak to stable, to take you from fearful to faithful. It is the glimpses of God's goodness and His greatness. That is its final intent. It's kind of like this. I was looking out the window, and I was noticing how the leaves were blowing and the trees were swaying. And you might just think like, well, leaves are just kind of floating around and the trees are kind of bending back and forth. But you know what's behind all that, don't you? Hopefully this is not like new information for you. What's behind that? There's wind. There's wind. Can you see the wind? Can you, anybody see the wind? I don't think so. If, you see, if you're seeing the wind, come talk to me. Okay, because you're not seeing the wind. <laughs> but you see the effects of the wind, don't you? You see it blowing. And it may look chaotic. And it seems to shift and goes all over. And so it is with God. And just because God is invisible, it makes Him no less real, no less powerful, and no less present. Because God is like the wind. And he is moving. And so, I ask you, where do you see evidence of God's providence and presence in your life? When you, when you look at your life, don't look at it as like random events and I wish this wouldn't happen, and chance. Actually look at it from God's providence. And glimpses of God's greatness, they're meant to increase and strengthen our faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Amazing book of the Bible, the book of Esther, especially chapter 8. We, we see glimpses of your greatness in powerful ways. And Father, you have given us your word to instruct us. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to start seeing our life from your providential hand. Where Jesus is even in our darkest days. Help us to see where you've been at work in ways that perhaps seem rather mundane but you're accomplishing your purposes. And help us to be a people of faith, taking you at your word and realizing that we're living and walking by faith even if if we don't see how it's all going to work out. But we know that you're the God who is able and you work all things together for your good to those who love you. And so we do to those who are called according to your purpose. Father, if there's someone here who has never trusted your son, Right now, Lord, would they just turn from self and their sin, their brokenness and their pain, and trust in Jesus, who is the one who died on the cross for their sins, has risen from the grave and gives new life. And Lord, help us, Lord, to live in the newness of life. May revival break out in our hearts, so it may break out in our land. We ask in Jesus' name.